Welcome to the Pete on Software podcast, where we program with passion. This is the podcast that discusses technology, the business side of software, and the tech people that drive our industry. And now, here's your host, Pete Shearer. Hi, and welcome to episode 16 of the Pete on Software podcast. I'm recording this episode on Saturday, June 14th, 2014. Today, I want to do a belated wrap-up of the WWDC keynote and all the things that Apple turned out. I know it's been 12 days since the keynote, but I really wanted to get a chance to sit and watch the video of the keynote and take notes rather than recall what I'd heard as it was streaming in the background at work. Right from the start, they set the tone with this WWDC. I mean, WWDC means the Worldwide Developers Conference, but they really set the tone that this was going to be about developers. The keynote kicked off with a video that was about five minutes long, all about developers who they are, what they're like, and how the apps they're making are changing lives. Tim Cook stressed about how many labs they had in 1990 when they started 25 years ago, only one, and how many they have this year, a hundred. He pimped the student scholarship winners and the 13-year-old developer who was in attendance. He also said that there's 9 million registered developers, up 47% from the previous year. The platform is really growing, and he dedicated an entire section of the keynote just for that new development tools that we're going to cover at the end. The industry itself, the PC industry, declined by 5%, but Mac increased by 12% and has an 80 million total install base, which is a record for them. And of that, 40 million people are running Mavericks, which is also a record. It's the fastest adoption ever of any PC operating system in history. I thought that was an interesting choice of words. They're embracing the term PC, which obviously historically means personal computer, which Apple certainly is, But it has widely been used before as a term of derision. You know, the whole PC versus Mac, Mac versus PC thing. Now they're claiming to be dominating the new personal computer market. He took a shot at Windows 8, which only has a 14% install base versus that about 50% install base for Mavericks. Uh, Even though that Windows 8 is a year older. But, you know, what they say about statistics. Even at that 14%, Windows 8 has a bigger market share than all of the OS X versions combined running right now. Just fun things to keep in mind about marketing speak. Craig Federighi was the star of the keynote, and to me, I think he's a really fabulous presenter. Even with all of his hyperbole and market speak, I could really watch the guy present for hours about just about anything. He He came out and claimed that it was an honor to present to so many developers, which is, again, more love for us. Craig made a joke about how Apple averted the name crisis and made big moves to switch from naming based on cats to naming based on beautiful places in California. And as such, the next version of OS X, which again, seriously, when are they going to stop with the OS X naming? It's been over a decade. Can we get, are we never going to move to 11? Is it just that OS X is way too cool to write down? But anyway, the next version is going to be called Yosemite. Tons of people were excited. Woo, woo, Yosemite. I'll say, though, that Craig was hilarious when he was joking about all the California names that it could have been, drawing the biggest laughs with a suggestion of weed, which is apparently a city in California, as well as a favorite pastime of Apple hippies everywhere. Yosemite is going to have a new interface, new apps, and and something called continuity. The interface is very flat looking and seems to have a lot more uh, iOS 7 influences. It's attractive though. Uh, Craig went on and on about the translucent materials that the windows are made of. To me though, wasn't that the Windows Arrow interface from forever ago? And I always turn that off. Being able to see through the toolbars, that's Arrow. I will probably use the dark mode and just let my menu bars be dark. Just things that looks think that looks cooler. I don't get the use of his word materials to talk about the window chrome, though. That must be a designer thing. Maybe it's industry standard. I don't know. I hadn't heard it, uh, but it did put me off. 
Notification Center now looks exactly what I know iOS 8 Notification Center to look like. It shows more unification between the platforms. Notification Center can also have widgets, uh, just like the Windows sidebar from Vista. When he was demoing that in OS X, that's all I kept thinking about was the Windows sidebar. There were spotlight improvements too. Uh, it now actually looks a lot like how Alfred looks, the uh, the program launcher, with a separate window with a search box instead of the text box showing up by the clock. What it does have, though, is a smart context. And when you find a contact, it changes the display things about them, meetings with them, a contact card. Searching for an app shows recently opened docs that you open in that app uh, when you highlight on, on the application when you find it. Spotlight will also do conversions for you, like miles to kilometers, that kind of stuff that Google does. Searching for sushi brings up a map in Spotlight. Searching for a movie not only shows theaters and movie times, but also matches against the iTunes offerings that you can buy and then stream to your device. Uh, By the way, again, Craig was killing it with the jokes here. If you have a chance, if you didn't see the keynote, you should probably check it out just to see this guy present, especially if you're at all interested in the art of presenting like I am. Uh, But he made a joke that you haven't had chili by the campfire until you've eaten it on one of Johnny Ives' custom-crafted aluminum spoons. I mean... (laughs) It's great because he was, he was just taking shots at you know Apple and the perceived way that people see Apple, and he was willing to laugh at himself, which I think really puts people at ease, and it kind of takes away uh, ammunition from your enemies as well, in my opinion. Safari has some nice improvements on UI, uh, how it handles tabs with the tab view and tab scrolling, which is really, really nice. Uh, if you have tabs open, instead of just making them all totally minute like Chrome does, it'll all be a certain size, and then you can just horizontally scroll through them to see what's up there. Or you can flip to that uh, the tab view where you can just see what's open, and it'll stack the tabs uh, that are actually from a like site. Safari now has WebGL, Speedy, IndexedDB, JavaScript Promises, CSS Shapes and Compositing, and HTML5 Premium Video, which in their definition, enables modern Macs to stream video from sites like Netflix without a plugin. Dang, that is one more nail in the coffin of Flash and Silverlight. If I don't need to use Silverlight to watch Netflix, I don't need it at all. And if I can get rid of Flash to look at other streaming video, if they can get that working, then all I have left are some games on Facebook, and those can go away. So, interesting times. Safari is also better on battery life and tabs. Faster in DOM performance, fastest at JavaScript, and for regular JavaScript, it's way faster than its competitors. From the benchmarks they showed, I may actually try using it. Mail also has some great new features, especially the ones around adding annotations on embedded image attachments. Um, You can just mark them up right there in Mail. That's pretty cool. After that, they finally got around to describing what continuity is. We already know about AirDrop in Mac, uh, although now it's going to work between the iOS and Mac, which got huge applause from the audience. There's also a new software called Handoff that looks pretty cool. If you're working on a presentation on your iMac and you have an iPad nearby, there'll be a new icon that shows up on the iPad at the bottom uh, indicating the the presentation software. If you grab and just throw that up, just slide up with that, the app will open on the iPad and you will be right at the spot editing the presentation that you were when you were on your Mac. That also works backwards. Uh, If you are on the iPad and you're working on something and you need to go to the Mac, whether it's mail whether it's you know that same presentation or a document, you go back to the Mac, there'll be a new icon sitting down there at the bottom. You click it, Mac jumps right into it. That's some next level Star Trek stuff right there. Instant hotspot. Without any configuration being done on your phone, your Mac will see your phone and can use it as a hotspot. Again, phone's across the room. I don't tweak anything on the phone. 
it just becomes a hot spot. I'm still one of those people that's on AT&T unlimited data. Um, right now, they don't let you turn your phone into a hotspot. If you do, it's a big deal. But in a pinch, and to be able to do this without any configuration, without them possibly being able to know, take that AT&T. I'm glad to stick it to the man. Uh, another new feature, SMS is showing up on iMessage. It's not that iMessage knows how to read your SMS. It's just that your phone's going to act like a relay and send them to the Mac, which seems like an obvious thing to do, and I'm glad they did it. The next level feature on that one, though, is phone calls. You can also receive phone calls on the Mac. So if your phone rings and your phone and your uh, iMac are all tied together and they know about uh, each other and you're signed in with your same account, when your phone rings, it'll roll it to your computer and you can see the notification and the caller ID right there on your Mac. You can then answer it on the Mac if you want or the iPad and just use the Mac or the iPad like a speakerphone. That's pretty cool. They, they called Dre on stage, Dr. Dre. That, was, uh, that got a lot of headlines. It was kind of funny. It was obviously very, very, very scripted. Uh, but even during that talk, Dre gave love to developers and the apps they make. Again, they're building up developers, I think, uh, obviously, and some people already know, uh, for the big payoff at the end. Yosemite is going to be coming out in the fall. Obviously, uh, if you're a developer or they announced the beta programmer, you can have it now. Uh, I have it now. Pretty cool. And again, it's going to be free like Mavericks. So drive to the bottom on price and I guess try to make money on services. We'll see if Windows totally follows suit on that. Finally, they got on to the iOS 8 updates, which are the the thing that actually affects much more people because there have been, instead of 80 million OS 10 devices, there are 800 million iOS devices, 100 million iPod touches, 200 million iPads, 500 million iPhones. Of all the customers, they got 130 million of those customers in the last 12 months who are buying their very first Apple device ever. That's some pretty good growth. And Tim Cook went ahead and took a shot at Android saying the switchers came from Android because they wanted a better experience. But to back up his point a little bit there, apparently half of the new customers in China were Android to iPhone switchers. Although anytime someone comes to iPhone, most likely if they had a smartphone before, they're coming from Android and vice versa. So that might just be a little gamesmanship and statistics again. But Apple does have a 97% satisfaction for their phones. 89% of the phones are running, or of the devices in general, not just phones, running iOS 7, which of course prompted another shot at Android, who only has 9% user base on KitKat. And obviously the well-known fragmentation that just goes crazy beyond that. A third of Android devices are running a four-year-old version of Android, which sucks because, as they pointed out, 99% of mobile malware targets target Android, and the four-year-old versions of Android just aren't keeping up with security updates, and they would be the biggest fish. Again, again, it's just they the, went on to mention iOS has great, great new developer features. Notification Center, as I mentioned, looks like Yosemite. Um, one of the cool features, though, is if you get a notification in an app while you're there, a message or whatever, a text, if you're reading a book in Kindle, instead of having to close the Kindle, go back to the, ma- uh, the message app, answer. Instead, you can just pull down the little drawer from within Kindle, and it just kind of over, overlays it. You write the message back, hit send, it closes. You never leave the app. Much better user experience. You can do that whether you're in an app or in the lock screen. There's no need to go right into messages or calendar to respond to an invite or anything like that. When you double tap, it used to show you all the little miniature versions of the apps you're running, but now the recent contacts are up there to show you who you recently contact and you can act on this quickly, call them, message them, send them a FaceTime, anything like that. Uh, With writing email, uh, the email now message is more like a modal and you can slide it down so that you can look in your other email 
if you're looking something up for your response. So again, that's another cool feature. Mail also has intelligent headers. This is kind of a subtle feature that I discovered myself that I missed in the keynote the first time. If you open an email, it'll offer to turn the sender into a contact just right there at the top, kind of like you see when you go to web pages and they want to announce that they have an app or something they want to drive you to. In this case, it'll tell you, hey, you can you can turn this person into a contact or hey, I noticed there's some time sensitive information in here. It offers to make a calendar appointment for you, that kind of thing. Spotlight's also better on the iPhone. It also will go ahead and search the app store, news, restaurants, songs on your phone and on iTunes, all that cross-environment searching that was on the desktop as well. The keyboards have predictive typing, which some of it's based on the message you received. So it'll figure out what might be a possible answer, especially uh, related to the person you're talking to and the kinds of things you say to them. So to your boss, it's going to predict more formal business language, while with your friends, some things it might just say, yeah, let's go get a beer or whatever. The learning is local to the device and privacy is supposedly addressed so you don't have to worry about that kind of stuff getting out and being analyzed. Continuity again, like I mentioned earlier, the iPad can answer your phone. Group messaging, this was one of the neatest features. You can dynamically add and remove people to the group messaging. Uh, You can do not disturb on a thread so you can tell it to stop buzzing you when all these people are talking and you'd like to keep it around so maybe go back and look but you're tired of your phone buzzing every five seconds. You can choose to leave it yourself altogether. You can Click a button to see all the attachments, kind of like just a common workspace, instead of having to scroll back through the thing and find every time someone posted a document or a picture. You can also see locations of where everyone's at in the group if you're trying to coordinate something. And you can share those for an hour or for the day or indefinitely until you say stop, which is pretty cool. Messaging also has a feature that you can just record a voice or a video right into the message. So before there was talk to text where you'd hit the microphone, talk, and it would turn into text. But now... You can record little sound bites or video bites to send through messaging that expire uh, in order to save space on the device. But when you receive one, if you just pick your device up and put it to your ear, it'll start playing. And when you want to respond, you can have your device to your ear and you can just start talking and it'll capture and send back your response, which is kind of neat. There's also HealthKit, which is a single place where apps can contribute to a composite look into your health. Uh, Fitbit, Nike Plus, Wahoo, Anything like that that keeps track of your steps, your calories, your heart rate, what you ate, anything like that can all go into one central place and then you can manage that from one spot. It'll be interesting to see how many of those apps use it. Is it going to be like Passbook where it doesn't ever really come to pass or is it going to be something that people use? It looks like they've got some of the big players on board right away. So we'll see what happens. I know for a fact this is a huge industry and there's some good features in there for developers to take advantage of. And it seems like you can get a lot for free and maybe for some from some new players who want to try to be innovative can come into the space and, and with the things you get for free, be able to build value. Could be a potential spot for some entrepreneurs. Family sharing which is a big deal for up to six people. Before, you know, if you buy a DVD, I can watch the movie. My kids could watch the movie. I get a CD. I could listen. My kids could listen. We could share. It's in the family. It's in the house. There's no big deal there. But now when you get iTunes, you just pull down music. You're the only person that has it. So seemingly, unless you you do some workaround steps, which I'm very familiar with, you have to buy, potentially, a separate copy of a CD for every person in your house, effectively, by going to iTunes, buying it, getting on your device, because you've all got different Apple IDs, and so you can't share the devices, or you can't share the music. Now, though, with the family sharing, you can share photo streams, calendars, reminders, you can find your friends, find devices, but the purchases are the big ones. You can share apps, music, videos, books, anything from within your family. 
uh, and it knows who your kids are. So purchases will prompt you, the adult, the credit card holder for permission. And then the kid's device understands that workflow and will not let them buy something until you've asked and answered in the affirmative. New photos have search capabilities and smart editing for light, color, auto straightening, and cropping. Siri's got some new stuff, but basically the biggest one is your your ability to say, hey Siri to her, kind of like, hey Xbox, and she'll respond. And then it also has built-in Shazam song recognition and then the ability to go buy from iTunes and everything else. I'm not sure what they're doing there, except hopefully a partnership with Shazam and they're not Sherlocking Shazam. I'm not sure. I mean, they did use them by name, so hopefully there's a partnership there. But after that, it was on to the, what do the developers have? So they start by statistics that the App Store has 1.2 million apps on it, uh, of which only like a fourth are fart and flashlight apps. 75 billion apps downloaded total, which is a lot. They did make some App Store improvements. There's an Explore tab where you can just drill down, look around, and explore the App Store a little more directly. Trending searches. So you can see what are people searching for. Related searches. So if you search for something, and there may be some other things that you could search by that will get you some some better results, they'll offer those to you. The search itself is improved. There's Editor Choice, uh, which may suggest curation to some amount, which could help the App Store. Then again, it could also add some collusion, so I'm not sure. We'll see, have to see how that one turns out. Uh, the big one that got the large cheering here was App Bundles, which allows you as a developer to offer multiple apps that you have at one bulk price. So let's pretend I have, just use Microsoft Office, right? If I have, and I have Word, Excel, PowerPoint, and OneNote, and I'm going to charge $1.99 for each, I could create an app bundle that would say, you can have all four for $4.99 or $5.99 and save some money. A lot of people have wanted to do that for a long time. And now that Apple's allowing that, it could make some marketing interesting. There's also going to be the ability to create little videos so that when someone's looking at your app in the app store, they can see the video that you create that just kind of demonstrates what the app does much, much better than screenshots. Because sometimes it's hard to get a feel for the flow or how an app works just by seeing screenshots. And then he also officially announced TestFlight, which if you're a developer and you've used TestFlight before, nothing he said seemed like they changed anything or any features or offerings of TestFlight. It's just that now it's an official Apple product. Ding! The SDK changes, though, were the biggest release since the launch of the app store. 4,000 new developer APIs. Let's see where that came in, though. One big change is that our apps are going to be able to offer services to other apps. From what I understand, the way he described it, this sounds like what Android's had where I could, for instance, register my application as one that could handle sending email. Then when someone created an intent to handle sending email and they allowed a chooser, my app would show up and the user could choose to send email through my app. Or apps could fire off events that my application would just catch and handle. Uh, Craig tried to pitch this one as an innovation, but I think that part's just catch up. Apple did offer some improvements though, like what they demoed with water logs, interaction with photos, and the demo for Sports Center and the Notification Center, uh, and the big translation work in Safari. Finally, he announced third-party keyboards, which what everyone heard was swipe for iOS. Touch ID is going to be available to apps, so you can manage your username and password stuff. You can involve Touch ID there, uh, so that the username and password, it seems like, are going to get stored in a keychain, and the Touch ID would then free that so that the user would not have to go to the username and password every time. Um, they could just use the Touch ID when you have your app up. That may be something I definitely check out uh, for some some enterprise apps I have in the store. Home automation via HomeKit. Uh, this topic just really, really, really bores me. I don't. I'm not interested at all. But the point here to know is this app is going to manage talking to all the disparate APIs protocols that all your devices have in your house, uh, and it'll let you pair with devices across lots of popular vendors. They announced several Honeywell, you know, blah blah blah. Uh, so uh, it looks like something. That, could be here, for, especially for you people who are really into home automation 
locking your doors, turning on lights from the distance. I prefer to just lock my doors and turn on my lights, but that's me. CloudKit. This one was interesting. So you think about your app now. You have Usually your app has your app code, and then you'll have a service you call to, a backend service, whether you write that in .NET, Java, Ruby, whatever you do, and you host it somewhere, and someone calls it, and you you write to a database, and you have some business logic, all that kind of stuff, right? Well, CloudKit offers iCloud authorization, asset storage, database storage, search, and notification, effect, and it was supposedly effectively free with limits. The limits are one petabyte of assets, 10 terabytes of database, 5 terabytes of daily bandwidth for asset transfer, and 50 gigs a day for database transfer. You don't get this all at once, apparently, though. They said it scales with the number of users. I don't know what the user scale to percentage of those limits works out to be. They didn't say, but this could be a game changer for a lot of the cloud providers if I can just effectively get some free DB storage for my app in the cloud, and especially if I can access this outside of iOS. If this gets locked into iOS only, I think it's a loser. There's no point to even do that. But if I can still access the things in CloudKit, maybe from Android at some point, from Windows Phone, that's a winner. And that might put Azure and Amazon on notice to step their game up. One of the big, big things that came out of here, maybe the second biggest thing, uh, was Metal. So the way you do a lot of your graphic stuff now is through OpenGL and and ES is the way you do that. You have your A7 processor, you have OpenGL on top, and then you have your game on top of that. But OpenGL was kind of a really, really thick layer. And it was too thick for some people. Metal reduces that overhead. It's, they claim, 10 times faster draw call rates. It offers pre-compiled shaders, efficient multi-threading, and it's designed to work directly with A7 architecture. Uh, They worked with EA, Unity, Crytek, and Epic. EA was able to get one 1.3 1.3 million triangles on a screen at a time. Epic had 4,000 draw calls per frame. I'm not a game designer, but this seems like some freaking amazing crap. iOS has thrown down the gauntlet to the other people for mobile tablet gaming. Sprite Kit. They released that last year, uh, and this year they added some more features, as everyone figured they would. So they ordered support for light sources, field sources, per pixel physics, and inverse kinematics. I have to tell you, I had to look up what inverse kinematics are. According to Wikipedia, it's used a lot in robotics to plot joint movement, and it's important to game programming because it's used to connect game characters physically to the world, such as like when feet land firmly on top of terrain, way when you land so that it looks smooth and fluid when you land your feet and your knees and your ankles would bend and all that kind of stuff. Uh, that inverse kinematics are used in that. Uh, they're also adding Scene Kit on top, uh, in addition to Sprite Kit, which is a 3D scene renderer designed for casual gaming. It has a physics engine, particle system, scripted actions. Uh, it looks definitely cool. Again, I don't know too much about 3D gaming, but the demo guy made it look really easy, so I'm sure it is. Just kidding. Xcode enhancements. First thing they say there is, what would it be like if we had Objective-C without the baggage of C? Which is an interesting statement, but then he announced a new programming language called Swift, and the audience here went totally nuts. Uh, Swift, according to them, is a fast, modern programming language designed for safety and interactivity. For example, as far as is the fast portion, to do an object sort, uh, with Python as a base saying that, you know, Python is the one times, one times speed. Objective-C is 2.8 times faster than Python. Swift is 3.9 times faster than Python. For RC4 encryption, again, with Python as the base here, 
Objective-C is 127 times faster, which is a butt kicking, but Swift is 220 times faster. So again, like Swift is even making Objective-C look a little slow and, and creaky here. It's fast, but it also has modern features like closures, generics, namespaces, type inference, and multiple return types. It also, the safe portion, what does that mean? Well, Swift makes a lot of programming language errors not even possible, like buffer overflows, uninitiated variables, unsafe string formatting, go-tos, and unclear copy reference rules. Swift is native to Cocoa and Cocoa Touch. It's built with the LLVM compiler. It uses Arc memory management and the same runtime as Objective-C, same optimizer, same auto vectorizer. Swift runs alongside Objective-C and C code in the same application. But to me, I wonder for how long. The way Apple works, you know, they offer something and they just start to phase out the other part. Everyone has to go along with them, go where they're going or get left behind. We'll see if how long both will live. They also offer this thing called Playgrounds, which offer a kind of a REPL environment for you to mess around and work with Swift. But it's like, really like REPL on steroids. It's just as easy. It makes Swift just as easy to use as a scripting language, but it's as powerful as Objective-C, maybe more so. Playground lets you ver- literally watch the code execute. So if I have code and it's executing, in the demo, the guy was creating a game. And so the game is executing. And so while we have the script window open on the left side, I'm watching the game execute in a window on the right side. You can drag the timeline back and forth and watch the execution. You can see the game change, watch everything that's going on. Really pretty cool. It was effectively definitely the most full-featured REPL that I've ever seen. Uh, There is a Swift programming language guide, complete reference documentation, and the App Store is going to take apps written in Swift or any part in Swift on day one. Swift really, to me, sounds like a great modern language, and it could possibly bring a lot of new people to the iOS ecosystem. What is funny to me is that I hated Objective-C when I was first exposed to it, but I don't know if I have Stockholm Syndrome or not, but I actually enjoy programming in Objective-C now, especially now that we have Arc. I wasn't looking for anything like Swift, but given Apple's track record, I should probably make a strong effort to learn it. I also want to say that Apple really seems to have done the unification of platforms correctly. Windows 8 went from making basically the same OS run everywhere. Apple focused on interoperability, the right UI for the right device, and similarities across apps, not OS, as it made sense. And again, the seamless use of apps and documents and tasks across devices can't be discounted. I have iOS 8 on my main phone right now, despite all the warnings. It's quite buggy. I have issues with talk to text, where it just stops working until I completely kill the message app and reopen. If my email app has been completely killed, it doesn't check my email for me in the background like it used to. Battery life sucks. I don't like the new feature where I delete a picture, it goes into the deleted folder instead of leaving the phone. Uh, I don't want to have to delete crap twice. Of course, apps crash when my and the device will occasionally restart. This is par for the course though with beta one, so I'm not too concerned. OS 10 Yosemite is installed on my home iMac, not my work MacBook Pro, uh, but by comparison, it's much, much more stable. I don't have any major complaints there. My pick of the week this week is the Swift Programming Language Guide. You can check it out at developer.apple.com Swift. I pulled down the iBooks version to read on my mobile devices, and it is well written. The first part is written for people who don't know programming, and it has a big language overview. The second part of the book seems more like it was written for people who have been around the block a few times. Right now, it's the number one place to go if you want to find out about the language. That's it for this episode of the Pete on Software podcast. Thanks for listening. You can provide feedback to me on Twitter, at Pete on Software, at my blog, PeteOnSoftware.com, or in this podcast page, www.PeteOnSoftware.com slash podcast. If you have a moment and want to support this podcast, I don't want your money, just your time. If you could rate and review this podcast on iTunes or Stitcher or wherever you found it, you'll make it easier for others to find me as well. Thanks again. See you next time.